Amen. If you'd like to have a seat. And hello, um, my name is Ali, and it's my first time being with you. I'm part of Soul Survivor Watford, and uh, yeah, it's really, really lovely to be with you. Am I all right with this one, by the way? I didn't ask that, but I figured that's, that that was there for me. Um, it's funny, I was thinking earlier that uh, every now and again, you get a little snapshot into your own sort of way of being, way of doing. So we came as a team two cars, um, four of us in each car. And just as we were about to set off from our church, Tom said, I'll race you. He's joking. But then I'm like, right, you're on. <laughs> the trouble is, is that really early on, I decided to ignore um, Google Maps and sort of go, oh, I know a shortcut. But then we got stuck behind a learner driver and then we got stuck in traffic. And so I knew I was doomed to fail, except then I took a shortcut later on and I pulled up at the church before Tom, literally as we were like turning right, it was like, there's Tom and I'm in front of him. And realising I'm actually quite competitive. Like I know that about myself, but every now and again, you're reminded of that. And then we got here and lovely Joe said, can I get you a drink? And it took me about five minutes to actually kind of go through, do I want a Sprite or do I want uh, this? And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm actually really indecisive. Like I know that about myself, but I was reminded of that. And then um, I needed somewhere quiet because they were rehearsing and it was noisy. And so Joe took me all the way to the top somewhere. I don't actually know where I was, somewhere over there, I guess. And it's this lovely, quiet room. And the thing that astounded me, like this building is beautiful. Like we do church in two warehouses. So this is like, oh my goodness, amazing. But it's pristine. Like it's absolutely perfect. And then even the area up there, it's like really tidy, even though people don't see it as much. And I really appreciate that because another thing you should know about me is I'm a bit of a clean freak. I absolutely hate clutter, hate it. It really, you know, agitates and annoys me. But I didn't always used to be like that. In fact, I was horrendously messy and it used to drive my parents insane when I lived at home. Like my bedroom floor, you, who knew what colour the carpet was because you could never see it. It was just always covered in clothes that I tried on and discarded and makeup stuff and toiletries and textbooks and, you know, clothes that should have been in the laundry hamper. It was all on the floor and it was always like that. Anyway, one day I was at home and I was revising. So I was home alone and there was a knock on the door. And my bedroom was literally right. The front door was there and my bedroom door was there. So right at the front. So I sort of opened the door. And it's this man and he says, I've come to read your electricity meter. And I knew that the electricity meter was in my bedroom. But I didn't want him to come in because my room was horrendous. I was so embarrassed that he would see it. So I lied. Sometimes, you know. I did that. And so I said, I'm not saying it's right, but I just said, I'm so sorry, but I don't know where the electricity meter is. And he said, oh, that's okay. It's kind of my job. I know how to find it. And I was like, oh no, sort of accepting defeat. So I said, oh, well, you better come in then. So he said, well, now that I know you're in and that it's okay, I'm just going to go back up to where I left my van and go and get my stuff and then I'll be back. So he goes back up along this path and I'm thinking, this is my chance. So I run into my bedroom and I throw back the duvet and I start just grabbing stuff from the floor and like shoving it under my duvet. Shove, shove, shove. And I get as much done as I possibly can until I hear his steps coming back. So I smooth over the duvet and I go back and I open the door again and I say, great, come on in. I've just remembered the electricity meter is in this room. And he says, great. And he puts his stuff down in the doorway 
And then he says, actually, before I get going, do you mind if I just use your loo? And I'm like, brilliant. I've just bought myself a few more minutes. So I show him where the loo is. I run back and again, start shoving, shoving, shoving all the rubbish and smooth it, you know, put it under the duvet, smooth the duvet down. Then I head into the kitchen and I see him come out of the bathroom. I say, oh, can I make you a cup of tea? He says, oh yeah, that would be lovely. So I start making, you know, boiling the kettle and everything. And then I see him and he's just wandering aimlessly around our downstairs, like going to my room, going back to the loo, coming out sort of basically scratching his head and I say are you okay there and he says yeah it's just when I came in I had a big blue folder and now I can't find it anywhere so I say um I think I might know where it is so he follows me into my bedroom as I sort of gingerly pull back the duvet and there amongst all kinds of stuff I pull out his blue folder and I say is this yours And I think that, and it was, I think that so often this is a little of how we live our lives. We shove stuff under the duvet of our lives and we smooth it over and what we present to the world is all is well, but underneath the duvet is all kinds of stuff all kinds of things that we're thinking about, things that we're struggling with, things that we're worrying about, and ways of defining ourselves. Competitive, (laughs) indecisive, actually stuff that is uh, sometimes much more sinister or hard to deal with that. And we just put it under the duvet, smooth it over, And then we get on with our lives thinking that that isn't going to cause any stress, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But actually it trips us up in all kinds of ways. It hinders us from living the free life that God has for us. And I suppose if there was something that I would label my talk tonight, it's a phrase that my dad used to repeatedly use with me and my sisters to no avail. When he was talking about mess around the house, he would always say, don't put it down, put it away. I never listened, but don't put it down, put put it away. And I guess that's my message tonight, is the stuff that you might put down and just try and keep out of sight, out of mind, Don't just shove it there, but let's get it out in the open. Let's Not to me or to the person sat next to you, but let's give God access to go under the duvet and let him get to the heart of the stuff. The stuff that we've been believing about ourselves, about him and about the world. And I'll say this, I know that we don't always know whether to mention the COVID word anymore, but I do think that as we have emerged, we have more, not less, stuff shoved under the duvet. The last two and a half years have been brutal in all kinds of ways. And we're just now kind of living as if it didn't happen on the whole. But actually, stuff happened to us, whether it was illness or whether it was the restriction or whether it was working from home or homeschooling or whatever it was. It's left us with some scars. It's left us with actually a bit of trauma sometimes. And I think there's more stuff under the duvet than ever before. So let's not put it down. Let's bring it to God. And I want us to look at this tonight through the lens of an Old Testament character, a guy with a great name called Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth. And we're going to read his story in a minute. Uh, we read it in 2 Samuel, but just a quick bit of background. And that there was the first king of Israel was a guy called Saul, who had been appointed by God, but actually his heart grew cold and he displeased the Lord. And God said, I'm, it's not going to now be through your lineage. The kingdom is not going to come through you, but I'm appointing a man after my own heart. And he appointed David. But it, just because David was appointed and anointed, nothing really changed. Initially, Saul was still on his throne and was actually incredibly jealous and antagonistic towards David and tried to kill him. In the midst of all that, David and, and Saul's son, Jonathan, struck up this amazingly deep and intimate friendship. It made no sense because the very fact that David lived meant that Saul's son, Jonathan, wouldn't uh, succeed and get the throne. But they became amazing friends and Saul continued to see David as, a, as an enemy, whereas David remained loyal to him and protective, actually, of his throne. Anyway, fast forward and Saul and Jonathan, they're killed in battle on the same day. And uh, after that, David does rise to the throne and what would have been normal in those times, and we see a fair bit of it in the Old Testament, is that then the new king would wipe out anyone that had any claim to the throne. We don't just see it in Bible times, we've seen it throughout history of like, let's get rid of the competitors. But such was uh, David's love for Jonathan and also his desire to honour Saul. Uh, he wanted to do things a different way. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. And it's going to be on the screen, 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. So King David asked this, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So this is a really unusual request that he's making, um, not to kill him, but he wants to show him kindness. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David and the king asked, uh, said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table." Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. 
So this is Mephibosheth, and this is what we know about him. We know that he is lame. That was what the um, guy said to David early on in that reading. He said, there's Mephibosheth, he's lame. The background to that is, we read it, don't look now, but in 2 Samuel 4 verse 4, what happened is on the day that Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle, that sparked fear in the family, as I've already said, this idea that the new king would come and wipe them out. And in the panic, as the family went to flee, um, the nurse that was looking after Mephibosheth, who was five at the time, somehow something happened and she dropped him and he was, it, it caused him an injury that meant that he was still to that day then lame. And it's hard to imagine the kind of fear that causes an incident like that. Like we may, may well not have lived through anything like that. Trivially, my family, my birth family, we are very uh, extreme in our arachnophobia. Um, I know lots of people don't like spiders. We take that to a new level in our family. And um, this time of year, they're on the move, aren't they? don't know if any of you have noticed that. But my sister was telling me she'd just not long given birth to her first daughter and she was uh, she'd come downstairs in the morning to make a cup of tea and uh, she um, had give, the, the baby was with her husband and she had her dressing gown on in the morning bleary eyed making this cup of tea got the milk out of the fridge and something caught her eye and she looked down and on her white dressing gown was a massive house spider and in that moment, she because she knew she had to get the dressing gown off quick, she flung the milk right across the kitchen. This thing just went and then, you know, hit the ground and milk went everywhere as she desperately tried to get this thing off her. And she says, I dread to think what would have happened if I'd been holding the baby at the time rather than a bottle of milk. And this is the kind of, you know, fear that just gripped this family because surely the worst was about to happen. Surely they were all about to be wiped out. And although that wasn't the case, you, the idea would be that the uncertainty hung over them as a family. When was the king's soldiers going to turn up? To get, it was only surely a matter of time. So it wasn't just that Mephibosheth had this moment of fear, but instead, like, but in addition, the culture would have been one of fear. Like every day, this uncertainty as we have this little bit of hot weather and we're hopefully heading back into more, some of you may have got your barbecue skills honing again. And you might know this, but if you're wanting to marinate meat, let's say for a barbecue, and you make it in advance and you get your ingredients together and you put the meat in the marinade and you leave it for an amount of time, what happens if you leave it for long enough is not just that the flavour permeates the meat, but the things that you've put in the marinade actually begin to break down the proteins in the meat. And that's what makes it really like juicy and tender and good to eat. Forgive me if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> Um, and it's this sort of idea that Mephibosheth was growing up, not just in a moment of fear, but marinating in fear every day to the point that it would have just worn away and, and shaped him. So we know that he is lame and we know that he grew up in, a, in an environment where fear would have just always been there. Here's something else we know about him is that he has labelled himself He's labelled himself dead dog. That's what he refers to himself when the king calls for him. Like, I'm just a dead dog. Why would you bother with me? And this idea that he's saying to the king, like, basically, I'm not going to cause you any trouble. 
If you're worried about your throne, I'm pathetic, I'm nothing. I'm lame, like what, you know, in a culture then, as sometimes now, where your physicality was, was very much linked to your importance and certainly whether or not you could take a throne from someone, he's like, I'm nothing. But I don't think it was just a sort of get out of jail card that he was offering there. I think that really did come, that's the first thing that came out of his mouth was I'm a dead dog, I'm nothing, you don't even, I'm no concern to you, I couldn't even do this couldn't take your throne if I wanted to. Who's shaped emotionally and physically through fear, labelled himself as useless and worthless. And then we see that all of that is now affecting where he's living at that point. Because when David said, is there anyone else? We find out that Mephibosheth is living in this place called Lodabar. And Lodabar was like the other end of the kingdom, as far away as you could have got from Jerusalem, from the king's city. He tucked himself, you know, that kind of out of sight, out of mind. But the place, Lodabar, what it means, the word Lodabar, it means no word or no pasture. So it's a barren place, a place where there's not a flow of rain. There's also not a flow of information, no word, no word or no pasture. And so that's where he was. But like figuratively, it, he was just in a place at the dead end of nowhere, no hope. That's where he's tucked himself. And so he's found himself through his uh, inner beliefs, the stuff hiding under his duvet, he's found himself in a place of death and just kept out of sight, no threat to anyone. And then we do the same. However we define ourselves is how we will live. So if you define yourself as dead dog, you'll live happily in Lodabar. It's the best place for you as far as you can work out. How we define ourselves is how we will live. And maybe our circumstances haven't been as dramatic as Mephibosheth, though maybe they have. Often it's the stuff that is almost insignificant in the moment. Words that someone that you trusted said to you or experiencing a rejection or a breakdown in family or a home environment. So often it's not even always that people set out to do damage, but in our humanity, we have been affected by other people's humanity and it has left us with scars and ways of defining ourselves. And we live with our equivalent of dead dog. And the thing is, we don't always notice it because it doesn't come out of our mouths. It stays tucked away. And so it's not as kind of um, neat and tidy as things like, oh, I'm quite competitive or I'm quite tidy. It's the other stuff like I'm worthless. I'm not lovable or God couldn't use me or whatever it might be. And it becomes our identity and then we live out of that, just like Mephibosheth lived in Lodabar. We do the same. And years and years ago, I defined myself as failure. And what happened actually wasn't that huge. Probably no one else around me would have noticed this moment of failure. But um, I was in a situation where a few things went wrong. And unfortunately, the environment was not a great one for kind of learning from mistakes and um, I really took on this idea that I was a failure. And when I left that situation, I, I remember praying really distinctly, I can still picture myself in my car, of God, that was horrible. That whole season of my life was really horrible. 
and I'm never going to visit that again. I will just move on and go and start my new life now. And so I really did shove that well under the duvet, smooth it over and on with the new chapter in my life. The trouble is it doesn't work like that. You know, it might sound like, well, let's just tuck that away. But how you define yourself is how you'll live. And as the years went on, God began speaking to me about things he wanted me to step out in, things he wanted me to do for him. And I remember really sort of loving this feeling of God speaking to me and feeling really affirmed that he would say, Ali, I want you to do this. And and I would journal it and I would say yes, but I would live no. Nothing changed. I wouldn't take any risks. I wouldn't do anything for God because all I knew was that I was a failure. Everything I did would fail and I couldn't face doing that again. I couldn't face failure again. So I would rather, I just lived sort of performing life, being a bit of the class clown and just sort of trying to make people happy and like not taking any risks. I didn't want to face failure again and live in failure again. How you define yourself is how you'll live. So I lived as risk-free as I possibly could. I didn't stay there. God, in his kindness, brought me actually to quite a crisis point. I ended up um, being very depressed and it was a long, hard journey of coming to the place of saying to God, I want freedom, I want to live as you see me. But when I lived as failure, I lived restricted. I've got two children and when my daughter was born, my son was about two and a half. And in reality, he should have really resented Esther's arrival because it changed everything for him and not in a good way. You know, he went from sort of having doting parents that just focused on him and all of that. And instead came along this baby that cried a lot, that took a lot of our attention and, you know, took attention away from him. But he worshipped her from the get-go. I mean, They're like 10 and 13 now, so not so much. But, you know, at the time, he just doted on her. He never resented her. He just held her, loved her, kissed her, wanted to be around her. So basically, that left me raising a princess. It doesn't help that we named her Esther. And when she realised that that was a biblical queen, she was like, yes, I embody that in every way. You know, she even went through a season of trying to get us to call her Queen Esther. And it's like, "Mm, not going to happen. But, you know, she was so loved from the get-go. She was just worshipped. And that came out in her demeanour. I am loved. I am accepted. I am Queen Esther. I'll say it again, how you define yourself is how you'll live. What is under your duvet? What are the things, what are the words you say about yourself? What are the things you think about yourself? What are the things you think about God that are hindering you from the life he has for you, from the freedom he has for you, from the love that he wants you to live in? You can't stop that flow of love to you, but you can not live in the freedom and the joy that that brings. When we look at Mephibosheth on the surface, we go, who wants to live in Lodabar? Who wants to live like, oh, I'm just a dead dog? And yet so often we do uh, the same and we come up with strategies to make ourselves feel better. Like I said, my strategy, my safe but dead place was not to take risks. If you decide that you're a dead dog, you'll live in Lodabar. 
If you decide that you're a failure, you won't take risks. If you define yourself as I'm only loved if I'm successful, then you will live a driven life. It's exhausting. If you label yourself as no one could love me if they really knew me, then you won't show the real you. You'll wear masks, you'll go through the exhausting routine of living pretense, putting on your best face. If you define yourself as not wanted, then you'll live in a place lacking intimate and honest relationship. So what is it for you? What has shaped you? How do you define yourself? What is your safe but dead place? In Mephibosheth's story, what's amazing is that the king sends for him. And he brings uh, the kindness of David means that Mephibosheth is brought near and is brought into a place of restoration and security from being on the other side to now forever you will eat at my table, which was more than just about provision and, oh, I get my meals for free, but it was about honour and security and this is, you're right in close. And God does the same for us. The King calls to us in those places that we find ourselves and He invites us to come close. He invites us to the security of knowing him and being known. And he invites us to feast. To feast on the truth of his word. Instead of chewing over the emptiness of just, this is who I am, this is who I am. I decided long ago that this is who I am. This is how the world works. God says, no, come and live. Come and live in my truth. Come and live in my freedom. And the place where he calls us to feast is in his presence and in his word. Circumstances don't define us. Our relationship with God does. We are his I have some friends and they are married to each other and they are chocoholic mad. In fact, I think you're going to meet Andy in a couple of weeks' time. But between them, they love their chocolate and they have acknowledged that the chocolate in their house is not safe while the other one is around because they both will seek to devour whatever chocolate stashes there are in the house, not really preferring the other one <laughs> over themselves. And so uh, my Andy took for a season to hiding chocolate around the house that Beth couldn't get it. So he'd buy himself a stash of chocolate and hide it. But she knows him so well and she would always uh, find his, his hiding places. And he said in the end, he realised there was only one place that he could put the chocolate where Beth couldn't get to it. And that was here. He just had to eat the chocolate. And when, when it comes to the Word of God, you can have the Bible on your phone or you can have it by your bed, but the only place to hide the truth is in here, is to consume it, is to feed off of it, is to like jealously hold on to it. Because when you go to the Word, it won't be long before you start to hear the truth. We are a chosen people, a people belonging to God. We are His children we are his heirs. Everything that he has, he has shared with us. He has given to us. We are made in his image. In his image, we are made. Isn't that incredible? That on the day when you feel joyful, you get that from him. On the days where you look at the world and your heart aches, you get that from your dad. You're made in his image. You're loved. You are forgiven you are valuable, 
You are a friend of God. He delights in you. He has freedom for you. We are a people with a future. You have been made a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And That is just a starter. That is just a few of the amazing truths. We get to spend the rest of our lives feeding on the truth of who God says we are. We get to spend the rest of our lives in the security of his presence, tucked in close where he defines us, not us defining ourselves. I looked it up once and the name Mephibosheth has a meaning And what it means is shame no more, or one who destroys shame. And I love that God spoke over Mephibosheth before a single event of his life had unfurled. He wrote over him a promise. He wrote over him truth. You sit tonight as one who God has spoken over even before a single thing in your life went wrong or went right, he speaks names over you, loved, chosen, child of God, heir of the kingdom, a royal priesthood. He speaks these things over you and it predates your pain and it predates your failure and it predates your sin and your shame and your brokenness and anything else that you care to bring to the table. He speaks his truth over you. It's time to give God the stuff under the duvet. I wish I had done that. I wish I didn't have to have, um, at the time, I wished I hadn't come to the place of utter decimation because it was as simple as saying to God, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to define myself this way anymore. I want you to define me. Come to him. Offer him that stuff. Don't put it down. Offer it to him and receive his truth and live in his truth and feast on his truth all the days of your life. You've been brought near. The king adores you. He has plans for you. He has freedom in mind for you. Come out of Lodabar and live.